0: Thanks for joining us at Fort William Baptist Church in Thunder Bay, Ontario. We are currently working through the book of 1 Thessalonians. In this book, we see the heart of Paul for God's people. It's a yearning for them to walk in the will of God and have close fellowship with the Spirit. As we delve into this book, we will see Paul's burden that the people find refreshment in the God who loves them, that they would fix their thoughts on God's coming and that they would live lives that please Him, knowing how to live with and before a holy God. Three. So the sermon text is First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 5. Hear the word of God. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Let's pray. Father, we readily confess this morning that our souls cling to the dust. Because of sin... Our souls are misguided, disturbed, not knowing what is truly valuable and precious. And this is our sin, and so we readily confess it, but we come to you this morning praying, Give us life according to your words. And so. As we come to your word this morning, we we ask, Father, that through your word and by the working of your spirit, that you would change our hearts, that we might value that which we should truly value. We believe that you are the Lord, and that you hold our hearts in your hands, and that you can change our hearts as you speak, and so we bid you. Draw near to us, sovereign God, and and change us that we might value what you value. We trust that you will do this, for you are the God who loves to answer prayer. And so we look forward to seeing what you will do with your word this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So far in our study of the book of 1 Thessalonians, our attention has been split between two subjects of study. Through Paul's thanksgiving, we've gotten a good long look at the Thessalonian church. We we know who they were and what they were like and what God had accomplished among them through Paul's thanksgiving. And from this good long look, we now know what a Christian is. A Christian is someone loved, chosen, and called by God. By virtue of God's power and grace, A Christian is someone who's been turned back from the life of sin to God to serve Him and worship Him. By virtue of the Spirit's work, a Christian is filled with spiritual fruit. And above all, a Christian is someone who has received the word of the gospel, agreeing with it, trusting in it, delighting in it, and clinging to it. And so we know what a Christian is as we've looked at the Thessalonian church as Paul has given thanks to God for them and and placed right alongside these descriptions of the Thessalonian church has been Paul. We've gotten a good long look at the apostle Paul. We know how Paul came to Thessalonica. Though he was beaten and shamed and and imprisoned in in Philippi, he didn't act like it when he came to this new city. Instead he came among the Thessalonians boldly, declaring the word of the gospel with, with joy and happiness even in the face of renewed conflict and opposition. And furthermore, we know how Paul conducted himself among the Thessalonians, what his life was like there. He resisted sinful temptation, saying no to greed and glory and flattery. Instead, he worked hard. He got up before the sun came up, and he worked throughout the entirety of the day, preaching and teaching and working with his hands. And he did this so that he might not be a burden to these new Christians. But instead, just as a mother or a father, he worked hard so that he might provide freely and graciously for these believers. And not to be missed in all of this is Paul's heart. Paul loved these new Christians. Chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, speaking out of his heart, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. And from this good long look at the Apostle Paul, we learn what Christian ministry and service ought to look like. Faithful servants of Jesus do what? Well, they boldly proclaim the gospel of God. They announce the good word about Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his kingship over all, boldly and with happiness. With this, faithful servants of Jesus live to please God, conducting themselves with honor and integrity, saying no to sinful temptations whether that be glory or greed or flattery. And on top of this, faithful servants of Jesus labor for the good of others, spending themselves, giving away themselves and what they have for the sake of God's people. And this is where all of this meets us. If you want to be a faithful servant of Jesus... These are the very qualities that must be found in your life. Whether you are a man or a woman, whether you are single or married, whether you are old or young, you must first of all be bold in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And with that boldness, you must then be faithful to God, living to please him and not to be missed, not to be overlooked. With all of this is you must have a heart, a sincere heart for God's people. That is what a faithful servant of Jesus looks like. And that's what this book calls us to be. And admittedly, this is a high and holy calling. Paul has set the standard for us, and the standard is high. This is what Christian ministry and service ought to look like. But with the standard before us, we cannot get confused about the standard. These qualities, all of them that we find evidenced in Paul's life, are all gifts of God's grace. Think about it like this. God makes his people bold. As we pray to the Lord, pleading with God that he would make us bold for for Jesus' sake, what does God do? He, He frees us from fear and he opens our mouths that we might joyfully and boldly proclaim the news about Jesus to a lost and dying world. And on top of this, God makes his people what? He makes them faithful. As we go to the word of the gospel again and again, attending the good news about Jesus, beholding in that word Jesus' power and wonder and glory and compassion and love, God himself comes to us and, and transforms us and causes us to resemble the likeness of his Son. And God, God is the one who gives us sincere hearts for God's people, As we push on in the Christian life, endeavoring to to persevere, enduring through, through conflict and trials, God continues his work, and what he does is that as we endure, he rewires the affections of our hearts. He changes what we love, and in fact, this is glorious, he changes how much we are able to love. And so Paul himself speaks of this standard and how it was produced in his life. And he doesn't point to himself, rather he points to the grace of God. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says this about himself. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Just think about it, everything of Paul, his boldness in the gospel, his faithfulness to God, pleasing God, saying no to sinful temptation, his ardent love for the people of God, Paul says it's all due of grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Even more, all the toil, all the hard work, all the labor, all of that too is from God's grace. I worked harder than any of them, Paul says. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And here's the takeaway from this. If we are to be faithful servants of Jesus, we need God's grace. We need God's grace if we're to find these realities at work and evident in us. And the good news is we find grace in the text before us. God in his grace has given us this passage for this reason, that we might be awakened to the preciousness of faith. And if we're to be faithful servants of Jesus, we need to be able to value faith as ultimately precious. So let's look at the text before us, the text we read. So if you have your Bible open, you'll notice that the word faith appears twice in our passage. It first appears in chapter 3, verse 2, and then appears again in chapter 3, verse Five, But that doesn't have to limit us. This whole passage, chapter 2, verse 17, all the way to chapter 3, verse 5, is about the matter of faith and its preciousness. So in these verses, Paul recounts his and his missionary team's travel journeys. He and his team had made plans to travel back to Thessalonica and to, to work further with this church. But each time they, they set out, they were prevented and had to scuttle their plan of going back to Thessalonica. But when Paul heard about the severe persecution that the church was undergoing, he had to take urgent action. Chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. And this required a difficult decision for Paul and his ministry team. They had to split the team up. Chapter 3, verse 2, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your Faith. And as we take in all of this talk about travel journeys, both failed travels and, and successful ones, we see that they're all about faith. Paul wants to learn about their faith, chapter 3, verse 5. And, and Timothy is sent off back to the Thessalonians so that he might strengthen and encourage them in their faith, chapter 3, verse 2. But there's more here. Underneath all of these travel plans is Paul's heart. His ministry plans... His travel plans, his service to the church is all driven along by the value attached to the faith of God's people. In short, these verses show us that Paul valued and loved the faith of God's people. And this is evidenced in two particular ways, and I want to point out these two particular ways to you. We're going to labor over these, and my hope is That as we labor over these two particular ways that Paul's heart evidences love for the faith of God's people, that through these descriptions that God himself would come and work in us, and that we would start to value the faith of God's people more and more. So here's the first way we see Paul's valuation of faith. Paul's heart is revealed through his boasting. So Paul boasts in this passage, and we need to think about this. So when you value something, you naturally begin to boast in it. For example, when someone comes over to your house, you begin to boast. You you show them what you value and love, and and God has wired us to do this. What we're proud of, we're going to talk about. And so the guest is in your house, and what do you do? You you show them what you love and and so value, and and that, that guest can't leave your house without seeing what you love and value. Or think about conversations. When you're caught up in conversation with someone, you begin to boast. You begin to, to talk about and express your heart about what you so love and value. You cannot help but to talk about it. in some way, somehow, every conversation, or it seems, think this thing keeps to popping up. And so we see Paul in our text make a boast. Look at verses 19 and 20 in chapter 2. He says this. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Paul uses some words that we know well. He uses words like hope and joy and glory and crown. But he uses these words in some really unexpected and strange ways. Paul begins by applying these words... To the Thessalonians, emphatically, Paul declares that the Thessalonian church is his hope and joy and crown of boasting, and in fact, his very glory. And that should strike us strange, shouldn't it? We're used to using these words, but we use these words usually about our God. God is our hope and our joy and our glory. But Paul pins these words on the Thessalonians. And This only prepares us for something more odd, but Paul connects all of these words: hope, joy, crown of boasting, glory. He connects all of them with the coming of the Lord Jesus. What Paul does with these words is he paints a picture for us, and the picture that he paints for us is startling. And I just want to set it before you that you might grapple with it. The scene that Paul paints for us is the second coming of Jesus. The king has arrived, and the king has arrived to vanquish all of his enemies and to judge everyone, both saints and sinners. And Paul sets himself in this scene of the coming of the king. And so it's the scene. Jesus has come, and and Paul sets himself in this scene, and Paul appears before the Lord Jesus. Jesus. And so Paul makes his way to the Lord Jesus and he does so in a very particular manner. He goes before Jesus with joy and gladness and boldness and then Paul does something quite unexpected. He goes before Jesus and he presents to the Lord Jesus the Thessalonian church. And he says something like this, we can imagine. Hear Lord Jesus, These are the people who believed your gospel. These are the people who, despite persecution and trouble and every sort of affliction, have persevered in faith. These people of faith I bring before you, and they are my hope, they are my joy, they are my crown of victory, and I present them, I give them to you. That is a strange scene to consider, isn't it? And it jolts us awake, doesn't it? That's what Paul is saying. Here is Paul appearing before Jesus presenting to Jesus in his judgment the Thessalonian church and Paul is Paul is exulting over these people. Joy, glory, crown of boasting. And so we see this and we ask what does this mean? It's one thing for these these verses to, to jolt us awake, but it's another thing for us to understand what in fact is going on here before Jesus. So what do verses 19 through 20 mean? Well, when Paul makes his boast, he isn't bragging on himself or or sticking out his chest in pride before Jesus, nor is he insinuating that through his hard work, that through his toil, that through his labor, he has earned this place before Jesus. And because of all of this work, Jesus now owes him something. Certainly nothing like that is remotely close to what is meant by Paul. And we get some help understanding this scene that Paul gives to us by taking our text and refracting it through another text that Paul Wrote, And that other text is Romans 15, 18. And in Romans 15, 18, Paul says this, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And as we make this connection, Romans 15, 18 illuminates this scene that Paul paints for us. When Paul appears before Jesus and presents to Jesus the Thessalonian church, what he really is doing is presenting to the Lord Jesus the fruit of Jesus' own work. Paul isn't saying, look, Lord Jesus, this is what I've done. (laughs) Reward me now. Rather, Paul is saying something like this, look, Jesus... This is what you have accomplished by your power, your grace, through me. This is your work, and I present it to you, and I give it back to you. And so we ask, well, why would Paul do this? Why would Paul say this? Two reasons. First, Paul does this because he values the work of Jesus Paul values the work of Jesus more than anything else. The Thessalonians' faith, something that only Jesus could produce by his sovereign power, makes Paul happy. That's why he uses words like joy and glory and crown of victory. So when Paul imagines appearing before Jesus, he imagines himself singing and rejoicing over the fruit of Jesus' work, namely in this case, the faith of the Thessalonians. Paul is worshiping in the presence of Jesus over what Jesus has done in these people, But there's also a second reason, and this reason is deeply personal for Paul. Paul uses the word hope. The Thessalonians' faith gives Paul hope before Jesus in the coming of Jesus. And their faith gives Paul hope before Jesus because it assures Paul that Jesus was at work in and through his ministry. Their faith gives Paul confidence that he really and truly was a faithful minister Of the gospel. Paul can see the fruit of Jesus' work through his ministry, and that fills him with boldness and confidence to appear before Jesus. And that is an amazing thing to think about. The faith of someone else can give you confidence before Jesus in the second coming. And so here we see Paul's heart. His heart is revealed through his boast. He boasts in the Thessalonians. And what we see is Paul values what he values, faith. I want to point out a second thing about Paul's heart. Paul's heart is revealed, secondly, through his deep concern for faith. And that, I think, is, is a too mild of way to put it. Without imputing to, to Paul's sin, we might say, for lack of a better way to say it, that Paul was worried about, or, or better yet, deeply anxious about the faith of the Thessalonians. In verse 17, Paul compares himself to a, a parent ripped away from his children. He says, but since we were torn away from you, in chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 5, Paul speaks about the crushing burden of concern that he was experiencing because he didn't know how his spiritual children were faring in the gospel. Twice, he says, when we could bear it no longer, when, when I could bear it no longer. And this should make good, solid sense to us. We know how this works. When something we deem or someone we deem precious is put in hazard, our natural reaction is one of worry and anxiety. Our thoughts are disturbed. We begin to lose sleep. All that we think about is that which is precious to us and how it might be damaged or lost or destroyed. And as we look at this passage, there's good reason for Paul's concern about the Thessalonians. Paul was torn away from these Christians right after they came to know the Lord Jesus in faith. These were only baby Christians newly born. Then in his absence, these baby Christians were were plunged into severe and intense persecution, and Paul couldn't help them. He couldn't lift a finger to go and be with them. Though he was eager, though he tried to get back to Thessalonica, he was prevented again and again. And he wasn't prevented by bad weather or bad luck or by lack of resources. Paul tells us he was prevented by Satan himself. Verse 18, Satan hindered us. And the worst of it wasn't just this, that Paul couldn't get back. But Paul perceived that Satan was not just working against him, hindering him from getting to the Thessalonian church, but Paul discerned that in and through the the persecution that the Thessalonians were experiencing, that Satan himself was at work, tempting them. And it's not hard to imagine what those temptations would have been like. St. Shirley would have whispered in the, the ears of these new believers. Wasn't life better when you weren't a Christian? You had a good job. You were well respected by your neighbors and friends. You weren't causing any friction for your family. Life was smooth sailing. Why don't you give it all up? Give up on this Jesus and go back to the life you had, for it was better. No suffering, no opposition, no conflict. And surely Satan was doing all that he could do, shooting flaming darts to raise doubts in their minds and harassing them with all sorts of temptations. And all of this, the the premature departure, the, the hindered travel, the persecution, the temptation, heaped a heavy burden of concern upon Paul's shoulders. What about their faith? Are they going to give up? Are they going to make it? Are they going to turn away from Jesus and give up on the gospel of God's grace? And Paul puts it like this in chapter three, verse five. When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. Why? For fear. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And so here we see Paul's heart It's so clear. We see Paul's heart through his boasting. We see Paul's heart through his concern and anxiety and worry. And we can see that Paul valued faith as ultimately precious. And brothers and sisters, this is what a faithful servant of Jesus looks like. This is what we need. We need to value faith like Paul valued faith if we're to be faithful servants of Jesus. But here's the thing. We can't make that happen in our hearts. What Paul had, what Paul evidenced in these verses was given to him by God. The Lord Jesus himself forged this love of faith in his own heart. Just to remind you, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And the call this morning, in light of all of this, is a very simple call. As God's people, we must be steadfast. We must be steadfast in seeking the face of God, praying, Lord Jesus, would you give me a heart like Paul's? Would you give me a heart like Paul's that I would value the faith of God's people as precious? In fact, Paul begins to train us on how to do this in this letter. In chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says this. May the Lord may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. May the Lord do it. And that's the call. May we be steadfast as God's people praying, Lord, make my heart abound in love for your people that I would deem their faith as precious to me. And so there we have the call this morning. But I don't want to leave you just with that call, and I don't want to leave you just with that call because there's so much more in this text to see. And so when we ask God to work in our hearts, we go to the Lord Jesus, we pray, make faith precious to me. Give me a heart like Paul's that I would love the faith of God's people. We should expect the Lord Jesus to come to our aid and change our hearts. We're praying with faith. We're praying with faith this morning as we interact with God's word. And we should expect the Lord Jesus to apply his grace to our hearts. So here is the question. When we pray and when God begins to work, inclining our hearts to the preciousness of faith, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to us? I want to point out three answers from the text. Answer number one, God's grace will change your perception of life. God's grace will change your perception of life. We see this taking place in the Apostle Paul. God's grace lifted up Paul's eyes to the second coming of Jesus, to the judgment seat of Christ. And by God's grace, Paul was able to see reality with, with clarity. On that day, he saw that what would make him happy. He saw what would give him confidence and hope. In fact, he saw what would be his victory, namely the faith of God's people. And because of what Paul saw on that day, he lived differently. He lived for the faith of others, and the truth is, as God's grace is at work in us, lifting up our eyes to see the second coming and, and seeing what will make us happy and joyful, seeing what will be our victory before Jesus, we will begin to live for the faith of others. And I just want to give you a few examples of what this might look like. I'm just going to give you two, but you can use your imaginations as you ponder God's word this week to to fill it in for different situations in life. So here's one example. Parents, when God's grace is at work in you, you will begin to parent differently. Let me put it like this, hockey pucks and soccer balls, even report cards won't seem so important to you anymore. In fact, they will become rather trivial when compared to other things like reading the Bible with your children and praying with your children and bringing your children to worship Lord's Day by Lord's Day by Lord's Day. Why? Why would this happen? Well, because you have realized that you will not be able to rejoice over one of those things in the presence of Jesus. You won't be able to appear before the Lord Jesus and and boast about hockey pucks and soccer balls and report cards. That will bring you no joy in the second coming of Jesus. And so why will you start to care about other things? Because you have realized by God's grace that the only thing that will give you joy as a parent about your children in the presence of Jesus is their faith in Jesus. And so what will happen? You will live, you will live for their faith. You will deem it precious in your heart and you will labor and strive by God's grace to see to it that they would have faith. That's one example. Another example, you're in your career, you're a mesh in it. And so when God's grace is at work in you, you'll begin to work differently. Advancement, earnings, billable hours, overtime shifts, these things will begin to have a, a less of a pull on your soul than they did before. And instead, a different pull will begin on your soul. There will be a burden for the people of God within you their advancement in faith, their progress in faith, their growth in faith. And why will this happen? Well, because you have realized by God's grace, by seeing the second coming of Jesus through, through Paul's words, that you will not be able to boast over any of your own advancement or your own earnings or your own billable hours, but you will only be able to boast and have joy and have confidence in the faith of God's people. And because you have seen that, you'll begin to what? You'll begin to naturally labor for that which will give you true joy in the coming of Jesus, that God's people would be advanced in the faith of the gospel. And so God's grace, when we pray, Lord Jesus, change my heart, make me value faith, will change our perception on life. We'll start seeing everything through the coming of Jesus. Answer number two. God's grace will lead you to make sacrifices. So God's grace made Paul and his missionary team willing to forego their own comfort, their own strength, their own security for the faith of others. Chapter three, verses one through two tells this. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. And these words can just slip right past us but we have to see the enormity of this decision for Paul and his men. We can be sure of this. This was costly and agonizing for Paul and Silas and Timothy, and costly for several reasons. Paul's missionary team was, was small. He lists just three men in this passage and in this book. Just imagine, these men are going from city to city in the ancient world, evangelizing and planting churches with the nucleus of a three-man team, and here they are splitting up that three-man team. Just imagine that. They're weakened in their strength. Even more, these places were hostile to the gospel. This was no neutral ground. People didn't like the gospel of Jesus and what the gospel of Jesus was doing in their cities. And, And so Paul would have been deprived of Timothy, and more importantly, Timothy would have been deprived of Paul and would have been sent back into the fire of persecution. Going back to the Thessalonians. But Paul and his team made this sacrifice willing for the sake of the faith of God's people. Paul was willing to be left behind alone in Athens so that the Thessalonians would not be left alone in their trials. Paul was willing to be weakened for the strength of the Thessalonians. He was willing to be deprived for the advancement of God's people. And this is what the grace of God God does. It it prompts us and motivates us and compels us to to make us make sacrifices willingly for God's people, for the faith of others. And this shouldn't surprise us because what is happening, the gospel is becoming incarnate in God's people, sacrificing for the good of others just like Jesus did for us so brothers and sisters if you pray this prayer Lord Jesus make faith precious to me don't be surprised if God's grace moves you to another country for the sake of God's people there Don't be surprised if God's grace empties your wallet so that people might gain benefit from your own possessions. Don't be surprised if God's grace moves you from somewhere comfortable and cozy to somewhere that is not comfortable and not cozy, that is full of trouble for the sake that God's people might be built up there. Don't be surprised if God's grace leads you to befriend somebody and disciple someone that you have nothing in common with. In fact, you think they're a little bit strange except for this fact that they have faith in Jesus, and your heart is burdened by them. And so you move towards them, prompted by God's grace. And so if you pray this prayer, you should expect that God's grace will lead you to make sacrifices, many of them. And one more answer, third answer. God's grace will motivate you to tend to the hearts of God's people. God's grace will motivate you to tend to the hearts of God's people. Paul and Silvanus sent Timothy, and they sent him for a specific reason, that he might tend the hearts of God's people. Look at verses 2 and 3 in chapter 3. Paul says, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Timothy is sent off as an agent of of ministry. He goes to console these Christians caught up in in suffering for the sake of the gospel, surely reminding them of the promises of God. He went back to to stabilize and establish these suffering Christians, providing ballast that their ship wouldn't tip over or capsize in the storm. He went back to remind these Christians, to remind them of the plan and will of God. You're going to suffer Jesus suffered, and this is the will of God for your life. You're going to suffer just like Jesus did. Don't be surprised. This is what God has for you. And so we see in all of this, Timothy was sent back to tend to the hearts of God's people, that they might remain, and not just remain, but that they would make progress in their faith. And this is what the grace of God does. It sends us on our way. It sends us to other people to tend their hearts for the sake of Of their faith. And so when you pray, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, would you make faith precious to me? Don't be surprised when God's grace fills your mouth with words of consolation that you might go to someone in their suffering and pain and encourage them. Don't be surprised when God's grace fills your mouth with exhortations so that when you see that brother or sister sitting stagnant in her faith that you might go and you might give them words to to move them forward, to activate them. Don't be surprised when God's grace fills your mouth with his promises. When you see a brother or sister shaky and unstable, you might lodge those sweet promises under their feet that they wouldn't tip over in suffering and in trouble. And so when we pray this prayer, we should not be surprised when God's grace will motivate us to tend to the hearts of God's people. And so, we've seen this passage. Paul valued the faith of the Thessalonians, and the call this morning is to value their faith. And we do that by what? We do it by asking God, would you make faith precious? And so let's do that now. Let's pray. Father, we cast ourselves before you this morning. We have seen the call evidenced in Paul's own life. He loved the Thessalonians, and he labored for their faith, and we want to walk like Paul did. We want to be a people. We want to be a church known for how much we value faith. And so we pray this morning, would you change our hearts? We have heard your word, and now we pray that through your word, you would do heart surgery on us. And we ask, we ask that you would change our lives and change our hearts, that you would lead us by your grace to serve your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.